just uh, an issue that has to be dealt with when the church has grown or is growing, and that is um, that there are some teachings and some themes that have to, to um, be revisited from time to time. Um, because there's some, some foundational kinds of teaching that took place um, when there were only 50 of us here on Sunday. Uh, and then there was teaching that took place from when we had 100 people here, and then when we had, you know, 200. And, uh, of course, we, we went into to two services. And, um, but it's important to come back to these themes. It's important to come back to these topics from time to time because uh, we want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand the message uh, that, uh, that motivates and informs everything that we do, that we understand the kind of church that we want to be. And so we have to talk about some things that some of you have heard a lot, especially if you have been around the last uh, eight and a half years or so. Some of you have only heard it a little, maybe only once or twice. And so that brings us to today into this message series, a series that we're beginning today, which is called New Life After Religion. Now it's not, I already had to explain this multiple times, it's not new life after religion, it's new life after religion. Once again, we're going to spend some time talking about some basic, normal stuff that ought to be a foundational part of our walk in our relationship with God. We're going to talk about grace, and we're going to talk about freedom, and what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to see, when we're done here in a few weeks, that one of the great things about being a Christian is not what goes on around us, it's what goes on inside us. Now, I like to think that I know my audience. I know that there are some folks here, maybe just one or two, if, if, uh, uh, you know, if not any more than that, and you're one of those people uh, and you don't like to go to church. Because for you, everything you see and everything when you, you, you hear when you go to church is like a, a big flashing neon sign that says you're doing it wrong. And you already knew that. You already had that figured out. You believe in God. I mean, you believe in, in God in some form, maybe a higher power or something. But, but one thing you know is that he's got all these rules and you're not, you're not following them. At least not all of them. You're not keeping them. And so you don't see any point just to be told that you're doing it wrong. No, you know what you look forward to is the evening news. So you can say, hey, look. At least I'm not that bad. Maybe there was a time when you tried. You tried to get it right. You tried to clean up your act. You tried to, uh, to uh, give it a good shot, but you fell flat on your face. And the last thing you need is some preacher pulling a bunch of verses out of the Bible making you feel bad and making you feel guilty. Because you already feel guilty. And you already feel uh, condemned. And the truth is... You don't really want to be here now. You came to get somebody off your back, you know. Uh, you have no intention of getting sucked back into church world. As you concluded a long time ago, that was not the world for you. you some of you have heard me say this before. You know why so many people don't go to church. Because they've been before. Or maybe you're on the other side of the I mean, you don't think you, you need religion because, you know, you're a pretty good person. 
I mean, again, you, you believe in God and you feel like that, that life kind of balances out, right? I mean, you're not too bad. You're not always real good, but you, you're not too bad. And so you watch the evening news and you say, well, I'm not that bad. And you, you look at somebody like a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa or somebody like that. And you go, well, I'm not that good, but I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I'm in, you know, in the middle part of the bell curve, the biggest part there. That's where most people are, just kind of average. And that's got to be good enough, right? Besides, you've done some business with Christians. Had a Jesus fish right there on their business card. But they didn't do very good work. They knew what they said they were going to do. They didn't finish on time. The quality just wasn't what it should have been. You kind of felt ripped off. Kind of felt like after dealing with them, maybe you needed to go home and take a shower. Or maybe you've seen some Christian marriages that just weren't that great. You don't want that. Or you've seen their kids who don't seem especially well-behaved, really any different than anybody else's kids. And if that's the result of going to church, then who needs that? I mean, I'll just take my chances and do the best I can. At least I'm average. I hope that's good enough. Then there's another group, and that's the Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time, but always kind of feel like that there's this distance between you and God. You know, that you're right here and he's way, way off out there somewhere and it's your fault. You feel shut out, condemned because of what happened last night or last week or last year or or at work or on that business trip, or at home behind closed doors. Maybe you've got this this major league sin issue. It's been going on for a long time. You're not quite sure what to do about it. I mean, you know you shouldn't be doing it. You know you've got to get things right between you and God. You've got to deal with this behavior, but you're not ready yet. For whatever reason, you've got God on the back burner. You're loaded down with guilt and condemnation. If you fall into one of those categories, I want you to listen to me. This is a little exercise that we've done uh, in the past. Uh, Some of you may have have done it. Uh, Here's what I want you to picture in your mind. I want you to create this picture in your mind of Jesus Christ himself here physically in the flesh, right here, right now. And he walks right up to you and he puts his hands on your shoulders and he looks you in the eye. And what's more, he looks into your mind, he looks into your heart. What do you feel? How do you feel? What do you think? Because I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think Jesus would say. He'd say, that's the problem with religion. The way you feel right now about me and about us, about our relationship. That's what's wrong with religion. It has warped your perspective of me and your idea of what it is to be in a relationship with me. That's what gets messed up by religion. Well, if we're going to be talking about it, we ought to have a definition of it, I guess. And one of the best that I've ever seen or read or heard 
is that religion is my attempt to work my way into a relationship with God. You can interchange a lot of things with that word work there. You can interchange uh, earn, earn my way, or perform my way. The thing is, religion says there's some rules around here, and if you can make a strong enough commitment or a full enough surrender or get most of the rules, or at least some of them right, then somehow, some magical way, your effort, your deeds can get you in good with God. Religion says you get in there by doing it right. But there's a problem. (laughs) Most of those rules are ones we made up ourselves. I I mean, we we come up with a standard. Our first problem is that we come up with a standard we think God is looking for. We determine God's standard. It's always a little lower than what the Bible says. You ever notice that? When we're setting a standard, we never set it up. We're never like, you know, I haven't been hitting the standard, so I need to raise the bar a little higher even. To, uh, <laughs> we always lower production, so to speak. But we make our own rules, and we make our rules his standard. And I'll tell you, if we took a survey this morning, I'll let everybody write down, write down what you think of the five most important rules to God, I don't think we'd have very much agreement. I think we'd be all over the place. Because we always interpret the rules according to how? To who? To us. Right? And our rules come from all over the place. You know, they're Bible rules. Thou shalt not. There are parent rules. Well, you have to always do this and you can never do that. And there are teacher rules. Good little boys do this and good little girls don't do that. And we prioritize all that based on what we think is important. See, I'm pretty sure that at or near the top of God's rules, God's list of rules, is be nice and be fair to Pastor Scott. I know, that's up near the very top. And somewhere way down the list is Scott be nice and fair to everyone else. You know, it's on there, it's just not as high a priority. It's probably important to God that I be shown mercy. But you... Maybe not so much important. Men who run off and leave their wives and families, they're jerks, right? Chumps, terrible people. Uh, But treat your wife with respect? Well, that's not as important. Oh, and you know, you're my friend. I would never, ever cheat you. I would never, ever steal from you. Uh, But the government? Well, that's a different story. So we know to be in tight with God, we've got to keep the rules. I mean, we don't know what they are. We don't know how to prioritize them or how to figure out what's important. And then you know what else we do? We edit out the ones that we're not good at. I mean, I don't think God really cares about speeding. Do you? I don't. I really don't. I mean, there's so many more bad things in the world. God surely has more important things to worry about. Speeding is no big deal. And you know why? Because I'm not good at it. I'm not good at obeying the speed limit. Listen, if rules are the route to God, and I'm not saying, 
I'm not talking about being saved. Thank goodness, most Christians I know have figured out that we're not saved by rules, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Almost every Christian I've ever known will say that. But we immediately revert to trying to stay saved and continue on in our Christian walk by following a bunch of rules. Now, what I'm saying is that if rules pave the way to get us in good with God, then we're in a lot of trouble. We're in big, big trouble because we can't agree on what they are, and, and, and we can't agree on their priority, and we change them if we're not good at them. And I'll tell you another problem with rules and with a rules approach to the Christian life. Sooner or later, we will use our rules to hurt or reject other people. I mean, that's, you know, what good is having a club if you can't keep somebody out? Right? In Jesus' day, the most religious people alive used the rules to get out of having to take care of their aging parents. It was called Corbin. It was a rule that said if you dedicated a portion of your material wealth or your money uh, to the temple, that it belonged to God. And so you didn't have to use it for anything else. But there was a loophole. You didn't actually have to give it to the temple. You could use it for yourself. So you could look at your aging parents and go, I wish I could help you, but you know, all the money I had set aside for that, I dedicated to the temple under the Corbin rule, and uh, so I don't have anything to give you. Eventually, we will use our rules to hurt or reject other people. You can't be in my church because you don't dress like we do or look like we do or talk like we do or listen to the music that we listen to. Oh, you go to R-rated movies and you play cards and, and, and just one rule after another after another that we can use to hurt or reject people. And Jesus would say, that's what's wrong with religion. <laughs> that's what's wrong with religion. You see, religion and authentic relationships are total opposites. In fact, religion and unconditional love are like oil and water. They do not mix. They cannot be mixed. Do you know, if you paid any attention at all in high school history, you know how many wars have been started over thousands of years of human history in the name of religion? How many millions of people have been slaughtered and persecuted in the name of religion? Religion and love don't mix. You interject rules into any situation. And the capacity for real relationships and unconditional love totally diminishes. I mean, we see that in our everyday lives. How secure are we in the relationships in our lives that we know are based on our performance? Where's, where, where's number, place number one? Where is it? Anybody else here? The lights are kind of in my eyes. Where's the number one place? where our relationships are determined by our performance? At work. Right? We all know that. If we don't do our job, unless we own the company, we're out. 
Nobody, nobody, no supervisor, no boss, no company owner ever came up to you and said, well, you haven't sold anything for a year, but we really like you. We're going to keep you on. Huh? You know, we can't depend on you to, to be at work. I mean, you miss two or three days every week, but you're a lot of fun around the dinner table, so we're going to keep you on. I mean, we're going to give you a raise. You never heard that. You don't know of any place like that. And if you do, will you please tell me? I've got some sons that need applications. <laughs> we know that in the workplace, everybody's nice and everybody speaks to everybody and we sit together at break and we go out to lunch together. But if we don't do our job, we're gone. Right? Now, some of us had parents grew up in homes where we kind of got the idea, got the feeling that if we didn't follow all the rules and, and keep the curfew and hang out with the right kids and, and get good grades, we were out. And some of us are married to this high-achieving, high performance-driven person We've got this sense that if we don't hit the mark, you know, if we don't get the job done, if we don't do everything right, if we don't do everything like they want it to be done, they'll move on without us. Because rules and performance demand in a relationship always brings insecurity. Always. And when we have a rules-focused, performance-based view of our relationship with God, we will always end up feeling condemned and alienated and insecure in our relationship. We will not approach a God that we think is angry with us or disappointed in us. If the road to knowing God and to intimacy with Him and to being accepted by Him is about getting the rules right, we know we can't do it. We know it. Deep in our heart, we know that if keeping the rules, keeping the, the law is what it's about, then we're out. Even those of us who've been Christians a long time, we, we have this, this tendency to drift back into a rules-oriented, performance-based walk with God. And one reason is, it's everywhere. It's in almost every church. Not all, thank God, but almost every church. It's in the pages of almost every book at a Christian bookstore. Every study guide that we get to use in our Bible studies. Every uh, preacher and teacher that we turn on TV and the radio. They're almost all promoting this rules-oriented, performance-based walk with God. That you're only as, as much used to God and, and good to God, you know, based on the level of your performance and how well you've done things. They'll stand up and tell you things like God wants to spew you out of his mouth. They don't even understand what that verse means. Almost every relationship in our lives is based on making the grade and getting it right, following the rules, 
And if we don't, we're out. We're off the team. We're out of the family. We're out of the marriage. We're emotionally cut off. I talk to couples. I, I ask them, why, why don't you treat your husband better? Why, why aren't you nicer to your wife? Well, because he does this or she doesn't do that. If he'd only do this, if she'd just start that. This long list of things that we, we, we know we can't get right. And what does it do? It brings insecurity into the relationship. And now watch this. Because we're surrounded by and engulfed in relationships like that and because there's something in us that wants to perform, you know, we, we want to do something. And we've all just experienced this through this whole winter and these snow days, these cancellations, when our kids are coming up to us about 10.30 in the morning saying, there's nothing to do! Now, don't call CPS. I didn't hit any of them. I just envisioned it. We want to prefer, perform. We want to earn our way. We want to earn what we get. And so we look at God and say, surely he's that way. I mean, surely my relationship with him is based on that same kind of thing. And the great good news about Christianity and about the Christian life is that nothing could be further from the truth. See, religion says, if you perform, you're in. If you don't, you're out. But that's not God. That's man's deal. That's not God's deal. It's man's deal. The whole idea that our worth and our value is determined by how we perform did not come from God's perfect heart. It came from the corrupt heart of man. And a rules-oriented, performance-based approach may be reinforced constantly by our pastors and our preachers and our teachers and our parents and our spouses and our bosses and our coaches, but it is not found in this book. It's not there. And the great good news about Christianity is that our Heavenly Father has something so much better for us. So much. So I want us to look at Romans chapter 8. I brought your Bible, turn over to Romans in the New Testament. Right after the book of Acts and before you get into 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians is, is the book of Romans written to address these very issues that we're talking about. Some of you may remember last spring we spent some time in Romans 5, 6, 7, a little bit in Romans 8. So you've heard some of these verses before. I want us to look at Romans 8, 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Let's read that again and slow down just a little bit. So now, right now, today, not when Jesus comes back and takes us, you know, off to be in heaven, not someday, payday, payday someday, now. There is no, none, zero, zip, zilch, nada, goose egg, none. There is no condemnation 
for those who are really doing their best, who are giving it their, their best shot, who are really trying to live up to God's standard. You know, those who realize that, hey, nobody's perfect, but just do your best, and surely God will recognize your effort, and you will be accepted. Can we pause there just a second? And let me tell you, you never saw that in your Bible either. You know, the, you know what the standard is in the Bible? Perfection. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. You know what we substitute for that standard of perfection? Trying hard. Striving. We say, you got to strive. That's just what it, that's what it means, Pastor. It just means you have to strive for it. Doesn't mean you're going to get there. You just have to strive. We'll find it in your Bible. I'm going to tell, uh, tell you right now, it's not in there. <laughs> looking at me like a dog who ate crayons. <laughs> it's not in there. And you know, I know every time I tell you something's not in the Bible, that we've always been taught in the Bible, I, I hear this the rest of the time, because you're going to find it. But I'm telling you, you're not going to find it. The Bible doesn't say, just try hard. We know you're not going to make it, but as long as you try hard, you'll get an A for effort. No, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says God's perfect standard is perfection, and that's where you better be. Now, I'm going to tell you how that happens in just a moment. But it doesn't happen by striving. In fact, the only place I can think of in the Bible where the word strive is used, it says cease striving. In the King James, it's translated be still and know that I am God. But the, the, the literal translation is cease striving and know that I am God. So now there is no condemnation for those who, what? Belong to Christ Jesus. There it is. Isn't that amazing? It means that when we trust Christ for salvation and place our faith in him for, the, for forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, we become uncondemnable. We are unseparatable. Nothing can come between us and God. Nothing. To condemn means to pronounce an unfavorable adverse judgment on. This can't happen to you if you're a believer. It means to express strong disapproval of. Many of us feel like God disapproves of us. But the truth is that once we become a Christian, we become undisapprovable. I don't even know if that's a word. It ought to be. Anybody... I asked this in the first service. Anybody remember Gary S. Paxton? I mean, this is going back in the day. The very first Christian music that started to come out in the early 70s, uh, second chapter of Acts, uh, Evie, Honey Tree. And Gary S. Paxton had been a pop songwriter in the 60s, became a Christian, and, and wrote terrible little songs like this one that I remember. Horrible songs. I wonder if God cries when we do the things we do. Do love drops fill his eyes when we prove ourselves untrue? No, Gary S. Paxton. That's not how it works. Once we come to Christ, we become uncondemnable, undisapprovable. 
And as soon as we say, but I did this or I've done that, and so therefore God, we've reverted back to religion. We've reverted back to the system we used to live under. You know, we say, well, I've done this, so God must feel that way. Or I, I didn't do that, so I think God feels this way. And God says, that's not how I operate. If we belong to Christ, we're uncondemnable. And that's not about anything that we have done or doing or plan to do. Now watch this. You've got to stay with me. So, because some are like, I don't know. This is out there. This is kind of extreme, Pastor Scott. I mean, are you trying to tell me there's no condemnation for Christians? <laughs> well, actually, the Bible's trying to tell you that. But I'll agree. Yes. Sounds strange. It sounds foreign. It sounds abnormal. You know why? Because we've been subnormal so long that normal sounds abnormal. Even to Christians that have been walking with God a long time, we get nervous when people start talking like this. Because we know we're saved by grace, but 15 minutes later we revert back to the old system. Got to follow those rules. Got to perform like this because, you know, the way God thinks about me is determined by how well I do. And, and look, uh, uh, he's not doing that well and, and she's not doing very good. I'm doing better than them. And we judge everybody by the rules. We don't know where they came from necessarily. And we can't agree on the priority or how important they are, uh, but, but we revert back. Paul, don't miss this, Paul is writing this stuff to Christians in Rome. And furthermore, he doesn't even know them. In the book of Romans, he says something to the effect of, I've never laid eyes on you. And yet he can still say to them, if you belong to Christ, there is no condemnation. If you belong to Christ, sin has lost its power to separate you from God. When we mess up, God doesn't run away, doesn't turn his back, or even blink his eye. And that's good news. The next verse explains a little more about it. Clears up maybe some of the confusion. Look at verse 2. Romans 8, 2. Because you belong to him, to Jesus, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. What does freed mean? F-R-E-E-D? What does that mean? Has been free? Set free? Something along those lines? If we're freed from sin, why are we fighting it all the time? If we're freed from sin, why are we so obsessed with sin? tell you why. It's because we've all been born into this. You've got to get it right to get in the relationship system. We've all been born into that. We're all born into the, do your best, follow the rules, you know, perform well. What I always say, do more, try harder, be better. We're all born into that. In this verse, Paul calls all that the power of sin that leads to death. It's cause and effect. You sin, you die. You mess up, you're out. You blow it, you're history. 
We're all born into that from the moment we set foot on earth. We start learning the rules and we start learning about performing from our parents and school and friends and, and, and uh, you know, our, our uh, people we date and the people we marry and where we go to church and even the Bible and God, we think. And that's religion and that's the system that we're born under and that we're trying to live under. Well, Paul says the good news is that the reason we're not condemned is because God has introduced something brand new. He's introduced the power of the life-giving spirit in Christ. That's what breaks the power of sin. That's what frees us from the power of sin. And in this, in this new system, new way, we don't get in or stay in or advance because of what we do. It's all based on what Jesus did. Can you see how that would be better? It's a completely different system. God says, you know all about the law. You may not be able to, to quote book, chapter, and verse, but, but you know it. You know the system of sin and death because you grew up under that. And you spent you know, your life under that, and you treat people like that. And they treat you like that. Well, Christianity is not that. Christianity is not a spruced up, reworked version of that. It's something completely different. Listen, this can change our lives if we let it. Look at verses 3 and 4 just to make it more clear. If you underline things in your Bible, these verses need to be underlined. There is, in Romans 8, 3 and 4, I can count at least two more sermon series, and I'm talking about multiple weeks, just based out of what we see in Romans 8, 3 and 4. Watch this. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature or our flesh, your version might say. The law of Moses was unable to save us. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Now, that's, that's a key right there. The, so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. God said the law, that religious system of trying to do your best and keep the rules, does not work. Guess what? It has never worked. It never worked from the time it first began to be given, to be rolled out to the people by Moses from Mount Sinai. It never worked. That's why every year, the priests, the high priests of the people had to stand up and slaughter bulls and goats so that the sins of the people could be rolled back because they could not keep the law. They were doomed to break it. They were doomed God says the law doesn't work. It doesn't work to get us saved. And it doesn't work in our walk with God. And it doesn't work because it depends on us. Because it depends on our ability to perform. And we can't do it. Now here's the incredible part. What we could not do, God did in
the basic foundation of Christianity is that what we could not accomplish in our own effort and our own strength, God didn't say try harder. God didn't say strive. He sent his son Jesus as a sacrifice to pay the payment for us, to pay the offering for us, to condemn sin, not to condemn us. God has declared an end to sin's control over us. And now that we're in Christ, our sin cannot separate us from God anymore. The power of life in Christ Jesus has overcome and overpowered the power of sin and death. Now, this is the answer. Because when you talk about this in the break room, right, or you try to share this with your friend, you know what they're going to say? Well, that just sounds like you're telling me I can just go out and do whatever I want to do. Well, you can. But now what is it you want to do? Because you're not really trying to tell me that the power of the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in you, Jesus himself living in you is going to lead you into a life of sin, are you? That's not what you're trying to tell me, is it? I mean, if you believe that, if you believe that grace means you can just go out and do whatever you want to do without regard for anything then please never, ever move into my neighborhood. I don't want you to come to the same church with me even. Grace sets us free to holiness and perfection. Grace fills up the measure of God's glorious standard of perfection. It doesn't set us free to a life of sin. Grace is not the gateway to sin. It's the great way, gateway to perfection in Christ Jesus. Because guess what? The perfect law keeper lives in me. His home is here. The law required perfection. And each one of us who have trusted Jesus... We've fulfilled all the requirements. Or rather to say Jesus has fulfilled them in us. See, God says, if you're in Christ, I'm giving you. I'm not making you work for it. I'm not making you earn it or perform for it. I'm giving you benefits. I'm, I'm crediting to your account perfect righteousness. Well, I, I don't act perfect. So therefore, I'm not righteous. That's religion. That's religion. In Christ, God gives us the gift of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how that works. See, what happened was there was an exchange. We know how exchanges work. Christmas time, just a couple months ago, we have gift exchanges, right? I give you something, you give me something. That's how it's supposed to work. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So that we could be made the righteousness of God, some translations say. In fact, one, the translation that I memorized this verse in uh, said, uh, um, for um, God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. An exchange took place and it wasn't an even exchange. 
Right? It's like when you give someone a, a well-planned, well-thought-out, relatively expensive gift, and they give you a Chia Pet. We, some of you gave Chia Pets this year. You ought to be ashamed. We got the righteousness of God. Christ got our sin. And let me tell you this. He got all our sin. I mean, can somebody tell me, put a percentage on it. What percent of total sin that ever had been, was being, or was to be committed in the future, what percent of that sin was placed on Christ at the cross? 100%. Tell me again why we're fighting it so hard. Do you you know in the book of Hebrews, you know, some of you don't know this, but you know the book of Hebrews tells us that when Christ returns, it will not be to deal with sin. We all think that, like we're, we've got this ledger. And every time we sin, it's being added to, right? And we're going to have to carry our little ledger book up before Jesus at the, at the, at the throne. And we're going to have to say, well, here it is. And he's going to have to, oh, my, 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 that's an awful lot of sin. Look how many pages. <laughs> Hebrews says when Christ returns, it's not even to deal with sin. Why? Because he's dealt with it. Because he died for it. He killed him. He's not coming back to take it up again. If we, I just got it in my head. If we'll start focusing on the grace and the mercy and the love and acceptance and forgiveness of God and stop focusing on sin, we'll be a lot better off. Second Corinthians, Paul says, we become what we behold. And that the idea of the plan is that by beholding Christ that we, we just grow. From one grace and one mercy to another and another and another. But if we behold sin, guess what we're going to be preoccupied with? And guess what we're going to do? God wants us to live by grace. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Not in, well, God's mad at me today. I missed my quiet time this morning. And that's why I couldn't find a parking place close to the door at work. And I had a flat tire. He was getting me back. We laugh, but that's how we think. Well, God likes me again. I had 12 quiet times in a row. Never done that before. Oh, now he's mad at me. I missed two. That's religion. And God gave his son to set us free of that. We're not condemnable because God has given us the gift of the righteousness of his son. And when he looks at you and me, it doesn't matter what we've done There is no condemnation. There's nothing that could alter his love and his acceptance of us. We we don't get into the relationship by being good. We're born into it. And forevermore, God relates to us without condemnation. Now, I want to leave you with a quote. An old pastor said it. I didn't say it. I wish I had. Fifty years from now, who will know the difference? But he was asked how he would explain the difference. He preached a message similar to, to what you hear me preach here. And he was asked, how would you explain the difference then between religion and, and Christianity in 15 seconds? And he thought about it for a moment and he said, religion is spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.